Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Right, good. Shall we uh, start with a word of prayer? Loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for those powerful words from the book of Revelation, Lord. And now, Lord, we ask that you be with us and, and speak to us all this morning, Lord. And if anything is said that is not of you, Lord, may it be quickly forgotten. In your name, amen. Well, the title for my talk this morning is A Dilemma, A Solution, and a Proper Response. A Dilemma, A Solution, and a Proper Response. You're at the theatre. You settle back in your chair as the lights go down and the curtain rises. Blinking in the light from the stage, you're transfixed. As a fan of detective novels, you've been looking forward to this new play, written by a a well-known playwright. Not knowing anything about the storyline, you eagerly look around the stage, looking for clues about where the story is going to go. Helpfully, the director has left various symbols for you to aid your thinking. Clearly, this scene is is set indoors, as there are sofas and chairs and a small table against the wall with bottles and glasses on it. A painted window purportedly shows the outside. At one end of the room, there's a blazing fire, and a middle-aged man stands warming himself in front of it. This tells you that the story takes place in cold weather, probably winter, and the Christmas tree in one corner confirms this. A beautiful young woman sits cross-legged in one armchair and takes a a drag from a cigarette holder. She's dressed in an ankle-length cream dress and wears an expensive-looking necklace. A handsome young man stands at the table, pouring himself a whiskey. He and the older man are dressed in dinner suits. The three of them must have recently got back from a meal. The young man and the the woman exchange glances, indicating that romance may be on the cards. A chandelier hangs from the ceiling together with the actor's clothes, telling you that this is a wealthy family, and the scene is set in the 20th century probably in the 1920s or 1930s, and a maid entering and carrying a tray full of cups, saucers and a teapot confirms this. Her dress is from that period. So far, you've discovered that the play takes place in the home of a wealthy family around Christmas time in the 1920s or 30s. The three characters have just returned from sharing a meal together. There's no sign of the wife or the middle-aged, for the, of the middle-aged man, so perhaps they're divorced or she's died. You've also ascertained that the younger man and woman are probably romantically involved. Not bad, considering that you know nothing about the play, haven't read a program, listened to a narrator, or heard a word being spoken. In fact, the play is only 30 seconds old. How do you know so much about that play? The answer is that you can read and understand all the clues given you by the director. He wants you to understand what's going on, and he's speaking to you in a non-verbal language that you understand. To have to explain every single detail would require prolonged study beforehand by the audience or an annoying and non-stop narration that would ruin any suspense or intimate moment. The book of Revelation is a little like this play. The crucial difference is that we don't readily understand the clues. This is because the author... John 
lived a long time ago in a different culture, spoke a different language and wasn't writing to us anyway. John would have just as many problems understanding our fictional play if the roles were reversed. If the book of Revelation wasn't written to us, then why is it in the Bible? And why am I preaching from it this morning? The answer is that although John himself didn't know that he would have readers far away in time, culture and language, the Lord did. The book of Revelation wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. John lived when the church was a ragbag collection of small churches around the northeast of the Mediterranean. Even with the help of the Holy Spirit and wandering ministers, missionaries like the Apostle Paul, the church probably felt very small. Tiny congregations of only a few believers met in many towns and villages. The Greco-Roman Empire, with its legions of pagan gods, massive temples and statues, would seem an enormous threat. Even in Israel, the Jewish culture would have seemed, seemed overpowering, and there was no sign of Jesus returning yet. You won't blame these early believers for getting a little disheartened. The Lord could see that the church needed hope. This is the purpose of the book of Revelation. The problem with being human is that we can only see things from our perspective. And the Lord knew his people needed to see more about reality. They needed to see things as they really were from his perspective. Here, at the cusp of a new year, I believe it would be good if we also are reminded of the hope we have in Christ. If we can keep this picture of who Christ really is throughout 2024, then we will not get disheartened. We will have hope. So let us turn to this wonderful book. And can I say at this point, if we could have for the... Uh, well done, you haven't beat me to it. But <laughs> yes, we can continue to have there. That would be very helpful. And if you uh, uh, can get hold of one, any of the Bibles at the back or can uh, uh, get hold of a Bible on your phones, then it would help you. Before we go any further, I must say that the book of Revelation wasn't written in order that we can work out a timetable for Christ's return. If we look at it in this way, then we're not reading it as intended. To continue with the play analogy, today's passage takes place in the second scene. The first scene has John telling his readers of a time when he was in the spirit, whatever that means. He was exiled on the island of Patmos, because of his ministry. Whilst there he received a vision from God. And that vision takes up the entire book. In chapter 1, John has a fantastical vision of Christ who orders him to write down what he has seen and also a series of letters to seven churches in what is today modern Turkey. Chapters 2 and 3 take up the content of these letters. They're obviously relevant to the churches concerned, but the number 7 is a clue something more is meant here. In the Bible, the number seven is regularly used to represent completeness or the divine. This means that these seven letters are to the whole complete uh, church throughout time and not just to the uh, churches mentioned. If we at Thurfield Chapel look hard enough for these letters, we will see ourselves 
Christ is not just talking to a small section of the first century church, but to the whole church. As I said earlier, Revelation wasn't written to us, but for us. That is the end of scene one, and the play moves quickly into scene two. Here John is transported in his vision to the very throne of God. And I must point out that John himself went nowhere. It was all a vision he received from the Lord. Chapter 4 has a vision of God the Father sitting on a throne. Like Christ, the Father's appearance is fantastic. He has the, the appearance of Jasper and Ruby and is surrounded by 24 elders uh, seated on thrones, four living creatures and what looks like a sea of glass. As John watches, the four living creatures would praise the one on the throne and the elders would fall down before him, laying their, cra their crowns down and worshiping him, worshiping him as creator. We will look at the four living creatures and the elders in a moment. But first comes a dilemma. And that comes, we actually, finally, get to today's passage. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. That's seven again. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I regularly get mail addressed to the occupier. It generally has something to do with the rail companies forewarning that they're going to be undertaking overnight repairs. Or one of the utilities informing me that the road outside my drive is going to be closed again because of repairs. <laughs> to date, I've never received any mail telling me I could only open the envelope if I was worthy enough. I wonder what we would think if we did receive such a mail. How would we know if we deserve to open it? What criteria would we have to fulfill in order to be deserving? I'm sure we would quickly search our consciences and remember the time when we've been less than moral in our dealings with others. Would those times disqualify us from opening the mail? I'm sure that similar thoughts must have been churning around John's brain as the, as the ramifications of what he heard hit home. Here he was at the throne of God the Creator. And it clearly wasn't a static picture he was being shown. Yes, there was worship, there was praise, but it wasn't a permanent church service. Things were happening. Questions were being asked. And he hadn't the answers. The mighty angel challenged all that existed in both heaven and earth. Was there anyone, anywhere, alive now or dead under the earth that was worthy to open the scroll in the Father's hand? There was a deafening silence as it became obvious that there was no one who was worthy of this task. So what was important about this scroll? What did it represent in the vision John was receiving? And why was it sealed? Now, I'm sure that all of you know a, uh, what a scroll is, and it's, it's not a book. A scroll is actually two tubes of wood with papyrus or parchment between, between them. As you read, you undo the bottom tube and roll up the top one, and it gradually moves up, and you read as you go down. And to prevent anyone reading your scroll without uh, permission, people would pour a little hot wax on the end and then press a ring or a stamp 
uh, into it. The, the wax would rapidly cool, leaving an impression that everyone could see was yours, one truly sealed up. Now, you may think that the seven seals on the scroll in chapter 5 are a little over the top. However, there was actually norm for Roman wills, and I believe under certain circumstances, also in Jewish law. Of course, in this case, the seven seals refer to the scroll having been sealed by God himself, or under his instruction. Sealed for a certain time, and then they were meant to be opened. John tells us that there was writing on both sides of the scroll. This was unusual, as the method of producing scrolls would leave one smooth side for writing, and the other being rough and uneven. If both sides of a scroll had writing, then that would mean a full and important message, and a lot of it. That the content was written at all is significant. God had written it down, and he had sealed it up. There was no possibility of it being changed, at least for the time being. But what was the content of this scroll? Today, we're only looking at chapter 5 of uh, the book of Revelation. But to understand what the scroll is about, we would have to study chapters 6 to 10. In these chapters, we would find out what happens when the seal is broken and the scroll is unrolled. However, so far in this morning's talk, we have discovered that no one can be found who is worthy of doing this. It's not much of a spoiler alert to let you know that one is found who is worthy, but that comes under part two of my talk, the solution. Suffice to say that certain momentous events occur on earth as the seals are broken. To cut a long story short, the scroll contains God's plan for the overthrowing of the effects of sin throughout creation. God is not blind to what is going on in the world, and neither is he not doing anything about it. And this uh, passage shows us this. Sin has spoiled and trashed God's beautiful world, but only for a time. There is a rescue plan already, mailed, uh, already made and sealed, waiting the right time for its application. All that was needed was one worthy enough to open it and apply it. The Bible teaches that ultimately God will create new heavens and a new earth. God plans to totally eradicate the effects of sin in all of, of creation and build a new home for himself and his people to spend eternity in. If you don't believe me, then read Revelation chapter 21. This is our future, and a wonderful future it will be. In the meantime, we live in a world where people look for answers to the world's problems in all the wrong places. People put their trust in human governments, in wealth, in pleasure, and in human philosophies and religions. News in the media is full of stories about the results of doing this. And we hear about crime, war, and hatred. People talk about being on the right side of history, which is absolute nonsense. And technological developments only hide the fact that morally, nothing has changed. We are the same sort of people as we were thousands of years ago. This is why the mighty angel couldn't find anyone uh, who was worthy to open the scroll. He searched history throughout time. The Old and New Testaments show us that God is committed to using humans to work within his creation. Uh, but all of us 
contributed in some way to the problem of creation. We therefore can't be the solution as we're part of the problem. This was the dilemma. Verses 4 to 7 gives us the solution. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its, and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It's not surprising that John weeps. Christ himself had promised him that he would be told of what will take place later in chapter 119, only to find that there isn't anyone worthy to explain it to him. Worse than this was the despair that must have gripped his heart, as he feared there was no hope for the, for the human race. If God was work, uh, working his plan of salvation out and using human hands, then there was no one worthy to do the job. And then what hope had the small group of churches who trusted in him for everything, including their future? Then one of a group of uh, men that John calls elders approaches him and tells him not to weep. There is a solution to the dilemma. In fact, it is already solved. Who is this elder? Well, let's go back to chapter 4, verse 4, which says, Surrounding the throne of God the Father were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. These 24 elders represent the church. Remember, this is a vision. The 24 represents a combination of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, the whole church. Their white robes represent purity and victory, and their crowns tell of their royal priesthood. Verse 10. This elder tells John that a solution has been found to the dilemma. One has been found who is worthy of breaking the seals and opening the scroll in the Father's right hand. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Root of David. These two titles are prophecies from the Old Testament. They are Messianic prophecies that predict that one would come from the tribe of Judah who would rule the nations. Judah itself is called a lion's cub in Genesis 49.9. In Isaiah 11, we have a great prophecy of the coming Messiah, the Savior, whom we're told would come from the stump of Jesse. In other words, from the family line of Jesse. In today's passage, we're reminded that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and the family of Jesse. Later, apocryphal writers like two Esdras would write that the Messiah would appear as a lion and attack the eagle of the Roman Empire. How wrong he was. And that's why we don't have the Apocrypha in our chapel Bibles. Christ would never be a political leader come to free Israel from their Roman oppressors. In fact, verse 5 tells us that this lion, this root of Jesse, this Messiah, had already triumphed. This triumph had nothing to do with the Romans. And as the next verse tells us, has everything to do with his death and resurrection. 
I've wondered what John expected to see when he turned to look at what the elder was indicating. Was he expecting to see a full-grown male lion in all his powerful glory? Was John expecting to see a huge cat roaring and showing its large teeth and shaking its mane? If so, then he was about to be surprised. No powerful predator here, only a lamb. Whilst John straightaway identified what he saw as a lamb, it nevertheless must have looked strange. First, it had obviously been sacrificed, as there would have been the telltale sign of a, of a slit throat. But sacrificed lambs do not stand up, and this one did. It was as if it had been killed and then risen to life again. It had seven horns, and horns are symbolic of strength or power in the Bible. That it had seven horns meant that the lamb wasn't a weak creature forced to be killed, but had the power of God and allowed itself to be sacrificed, that number seven again. The whole lion, lamb thing, must have been given John a headache. Lions are symbols of majesty, power, rule and authority. Lions conquer, lambs submit. Lions roar, lambs die. The picture John was receiving of one who had triumphed, conquered, by submitting to death. This lamb also had seven eyes, which John helpfully tells us is symbolic of the seven spirits of God. We know seven means complete or divine, so the seven spirits of God have to be the Holy Spirit. The clues are mounting up as to who this lamb represents. He was slain as he had the marks of being killed, but the marks are that of a sacrifice, showing that he had died as a sacrifice. Yet he stood showing that he had overcome death. He had seven horns, showing that he had divine, complete power. His death hadn't been forced on him. He had been chosen. He had chosen to be a sacrifice and gone to his death voluntarily. And lastly, he had the Holy Spirit. He was of God. This lamb was both God and man. At last, the dilemma is over. And a solution has been found. In all of creation and throughout time, there is only one who is worthy of taking the scroll from God the Father and opening its seals. Only one who is worthy of instigating God's plans for the, for the eradication of sin in the universe. Christ himself. The revelation John received is careful to show that the triumph won by Christ, verse 5, was accomplished by the sacrifice of the Lamb and through no other way. More than this, the Lamb triumphs would uh, enable more than the removal, or, sorry, the Lamb's triumph would enable more than the removal of sin from human beings if they trusted him. But the complete removal of sin everywhere. It wasn't a lion that took the scroll from God's hand, but a lamb. A proper response, verse 1. Verses 8 to 10. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
time to look at who these four living creatures are in this vision. Who do they represent? Well, again, going back to chapter 4, verses 6b to 8, this introduces them to us. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These rather unusual creatures seem to resemble the angelic creatures we read of in Isaiah and Ezekiel, but with important differences. And not surprisingly, they have puzzled people down the ages. Early Christian tradition thought they represented the four gospel writers, Matthew having the human face, Mark the lion, Luke the ox, and John the eagle. I'm not sure why they chose those particular, uh, those, those particular ones. However, uh, theologian N.T. Wright thinks they represent animal creation. If he is correct, then it is the church represented by the 24 elders and creation represented by the four living creatures that are singing to God in this section of our passage. We are meant to see that all of creation is dependent on God and worships him in its own way. The slain and risen lamb, of course, is at the centre of this worship. Now the 24 elders, the church, uh, believers throughout time, are carrying two things. Golden bowls full of incense, which represent the prayers of God's people and harps. Now when the passage says God's people, it means you and me. Our prayers are in those symbolic bowls. God receives our prayers and they're like a sweet-smelling incense to him. And that means we have become actors in God's play. That the prayers are in golden bowls is significant. It shows that these prayers are valuable. You don't get out your best china except at important meals. It's interesting to understand that God wants us to be part of his work of salvation. Of course we can't do what the risen lamb, Jesus, has done. And much is still hidden for us, hidden from us in the scroll that Christ is unveiling as time goes by. Yet clearly God values our prayers. And this should encourage us to pray more. It's also important to realise that the prayers received by God are like sweet-smelling incense. There weren't any bowls of second-rate rancid incense or incense that's lost its aroma. This tells us it doesn't matter whether our prayers are long, made eloquently, with all the right words, in the right places, or if they're short and disjointed. All prayers made to God are of the same quality to him, if they're genuine. Each of the 24 elders carried a harp. Just as the incense represented the prayers of the church, so too do the harp. The harps represent the music and sung worship of the church. Prayer and singing are integral parts of, of the worship of God. And God values whatever joyful noise we can make in worship of him. The inference in this passage is that the harps provide the musical accompaniment to the new song 
of verse 9. Together, the representations of the church and creation are praying and singing to the Lord. They tell us that Christ is worthy of opening the scroll and give five reasons. And these reasons fall into past, present and future. The first, the past, has to do with Christ's death. Now his blood paid the price for the salvation uh, of persons from every tribe and language and people and, 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 uh, and nation. Verse 9. Our eternal life with Christ came at a cost, but a cost that Christ was willing to pay. Note that this is viewed as an accomplished fact. We don't have to perform rituals or live with uncertainty as to our position with Christ. As Romans 9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The emphasis is on the will. Verse 10a points to the present position of believers. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our Lord, our God. This is how we are now. If we are his, uh, then we already have eternal life. And we are already part of God's kingdom. Currently we may share the spoiled word that God, world that God created, but we're no longer under its rule. Our sovereign is God himself. And we no longer need human priests to intercede between us and God, as we are all priests if we are Christ's. We all have access to God in prayer. Verse 10b gives us a glimpse of our future where, when it says, and they will reign on the earth. Although our sovereign is on the throne now, the church is clearly not reigning at present. But the whole of chapter 5 of Revelation is telling us that God has plans and they're already drawn up. One day Christ will return and there will be new heavens and a new earth. God's home will be with mankind. He is worthy, worthy of bringing the Father's plans to fruition. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we've been adopted into the family of God. We are legally children of God. Once we were a little lower than the angels, but now we are above them as brothers and sisters of Christ. In the Garden of Eden, we were a, an innocent creation, but now we are uh, a forgiven, uh, we are forgiven co-heirs with Christ. And our future includes reigning on earth with Christ. Proper response number two. Verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The vision John was receiving must have nearly overwhelmed him. Nothing was standing still for long. Now innumerable angels added to the praise and worship of the elders and living creatures. Before, John had been able to count the number of participants, but not now. In a scene resembling that of a film or an opera, and in one voice, hundreds of thousands of angels exalted the Lamb. And it was a sevenfold exaltation. He was worthy to receive power, they exclaimed. He alone was the man God who had died and risen from death. He alone was the saviour who was worthy of the power to defeat Satan and to accomplish God's purposes on earth. And wealth. The richest men on earth 
only have a fraction of the potential wealth of creation. Christ created all of it. And all has been given to him and his by right of redemption and reclamation. reclamation. And wisdom. The Lamb is God. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Because of this, he is worthy of understanding and putting into action the purposes of God. And strength. The Lamb has what it takes to do the job, to finish the, uh, the purposes of God as given in the scrolls and uh, the seals. And honour, because of whom he is and what he has done. He is worthy of all the esteem, value and respect given him. And glory. The glory of the Lamb stems from his person and his work, both past, present and future. And praise. It is the praise of a job well done, Lamb deserves our praise because of what he has done for us. But more than this, we should praise him for what he is doing in our lives now and what he will do in the future. Proper response 3, verses 13 and 14. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In thunderous worship, all of creation worships both God the Father, him who sits on the throne, and God the Son, the Lamb. This must have been an awe-inspiring sight for John. If we're not totally overwhelmed by the picture presented to us, and if our brains aren't fried by what we have already heard today, then we will have glimpsed a profound truth in what we've just read. For most of us here this, this morning, it will, may seem obvious, but many groups have struggled with this down the years. Was Jesus God? Well, in this passage, God the Father and the Lamb share the praise and worship of all of creation. This is the praise and worship that belongs only to God. Jesus may have been a man who was born on earth and on the, on the first Christmas day. He may have been the Lion of Judah, Israel's Messiah, and the Lamb of God. Yet he was also God. Heaven and earth met together when Jesus lived on earth. The picture we have this morning is of God's rescue plan for creation. God has plans and purposes uh, to deliver his world from the sin that has spoiled it. He will re-establish his sovereign rule, his kingdom on earth, as in heaven. At the heart of those plans is the Lamb, sharing the throne of the Father, who has been given authority to bring those, la uh, those plans to fruition. And why has he been given this authority? Because he is the only one that is worthy. No wonder the four living creatures and the elders fell down before the Father and Lamb. No wonder they answered the praise and worship of all of creation who were saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. No wonder they said, Amen. To all of this. The emphasis on these words is clearly worship. They recognize the worthiness of the Lamb to take the scroll, open its seals, and bring to fruition the plans of God the Father. And while the worship is taking place, all attention is on the Lamb. No one is preoccupied with others or themselves. No frail egos have to be massaged, and there are no attention seekers in this passage. This chapter is a beautiful example of what our worship and service should be like today. Not just at some future date, but today. 
Now as we pray and then sing one more time, let us remember exactly whom we are praying and singing to. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for this passage from the book of Revelation. We thank you for this glimpse into reality from a heavenly perspective. And above all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Now we would, in, we would join with the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the hundreds of thousands of angels in proclaiming, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website or send us a message on social media. Thank you again. and Please do join us next week online or in Thurfield itself at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.